Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, January 20th, 2022. I'm John Pothorst, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, Washington Commentary columnist, AEI scholar, and author of the forthcoming History of the Conservative Movement in America, the right, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Um, now we know why they kept him in the basement. We know why Joe Biden was kept in the basement during 2020. Uh, he just gave the most astounding press conference in press conference history. If you didn't watch it, it was an hour and 50 minutes of jaw-dropping wonder as, as Biden made more news than anybody has ever made in any press conference in history. And he didn't want to, and he did anyway. It was astounding, horrifying, terrifying, 25th Amendment suggesting uh, incoherence, blather, a surrender of an entire country, a guy talking about the dictator of Russia as though he were kind of like a commentator on ESPN talking about what his what Putin's strategic options would be and what he what he would guess Putin is probably going to do or not do. Um, Matt, let me uh, let me let me go to you first. Um, do, do you have an individual takeaway or uh, are, are you are you reeling from the fact that he is going to be president for another two years and uh, for another three years? Literally, another. Uh, I, I feel like the old uh, DC area sports broadcaster George Michael, who always used to say, "Let's go to the videotape," because there are so many individual moments of um, uh, absurdity, and uh, I mean, beyond a Kinsley gaffe. You know, a Kinsley gaffe is famously when a politician tells the truth, um, but these were just kind of amazing uh statements coming from the president's mouth that it's hard to find just one i will start with this toward the end of the of the almost two hour feature length press conference um biden was asked you know is he going to change his behavior in uh in his second year as president and he said well you know i'm gonna i'm gonna get out go to the country more definitely gonna go to the country more and um also i'm gonna have more conversations with outside academics and when i heard and that historians I, and historians, historians like he did and, at the beginning exactly and so i immediately thought of the infamous meeting with the historians at the outset of his presidency that had been organized by his advisor john meacham the presidential biographer and kind of self-appointed national conscience um where biden first became convinced that he could be like FDR and LBJ in his grand significance of transformation, which led him down to this just catastrophic for him politically road. And then in the most uh, controversial speech of his presidency, which was last week's speech in Atlanta, where he likened uh, opponents of the election takeover bills to uh, George Wallace and Jefferson Davis and the villains of American history, um, that speech was also written by or co-written by Meacham. So he, but at the end of the two hours where he's saying, here's how I'm going to change my strategy, he's actually going more Meacham, M-O-A-R 
Meacham, which is precisely the opposite of what he needs to do uh, to recover politically ahead of midterms. But uh, Matt, I mean, uh, John Meacham, you know, He's so serious as uh, as Thomas Jefferson said <laughs> one day, solemn. There was a time when Henry Clay and John Calhoun just happened to be walking down to the reflecting pool. So wise, yeah, blah 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 blah. Anyway, it was fantastic. That was an interesting moment. Let's go to the policy. Sure. First of all, I don't know if you know this, but uh, he has had a better year than any uh, uh, president, uh, first year than any president. Who's done more than, than he has? Who's done more? Well, it's true that he has spent more than any president in their first year because nobody has spent more. Uh, what, what are we up to? Four trillion, is it? between the infrastructure bill and the COVID emergency bill? Is it like... It's like three. Trillion? It's three trillion, I think. Three, yeah. three trillion. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's geez, you, know a trillion you lose here, a trillion, trillion here or there. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, that's... He started out by saying that he not only had he not um, under, uh, under-delivered, he'd over-delivered. He didn't under-promise and over... He over-delivered. He's the best... He's the best, which explains the 15-point shift in the direction of the Republicans over the course of the year that he concluded with this press conference. Because he's so good that he is driving his own voters away from him like, you know, I don't know, like a mosquito repellent or an actually effective mosquito repellent. Anyway, uh, so he over. So uh, of course, the big, the big news, or the big horror, or the thing that really does suggest um, that uh, it, it is not too much to say that he is a a, a fool uh, was his discussion of the uh, of Russia and Ukraine. Noah, uh, can I just share with you something? Uh, this is very vulgar. Okay, I'm going to about to tell you something very vulgar. I will not source a, a prominent, a prominent conservative contacted me to say that essentially what Biden was saying to Putin is it's okay as long as you only go in with the tip. Just, just you, you just put in the tip. It's fine. <laughs> oh yikes! <laughs> the minor incursion strategy. I will not take your bait. Sir, uh, yeah, there were. Uh, uh, you're not going to beat that one, so just please, you I know, shan't. Yeah, yeah, okay. No, little, I'll let that one lie. Um, there were two problem. My my, there were two takeaways really from this two-hour press conference. Aside from um, what were alternately hilarious and painful moments, watching Joe Biden navigate uh, something that was in real time killing him uh physically and politically uh two of them had to do with one of them had to do with russia the second had to do with the legitimacy of american elections but we'll get to that and on both occasions he said something that could have easily been walked back as just having misspoken um but they were so earth-shattering when they made he made these remarks that the press picked up on it circled back on it about you know 30 minutes later at which point Joe Biden would go on this rambling stream of consciousness, extemporaneous explanation for what he had originally said that made everything worse. 
And when it comes to the Russia thing, there's real consequences for that. He was uh, asked rather directly what the United States can do in order to prevent what increasingly looks like a very real plan on the part of Moscow to uh, reinvade Ukraine. And um, at that point, he said what you had just said, that he said, quote, it's one thing if it's a minor incursion and we end up having to fight about what we're going to do and not do. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the forces amassed on the border, it's going to be a disaster for Russia if they further invade Ukraine. So anybody who practices statecraft knows exactly what he had just said. He exposed divisions within the Atlantic Alliance over how to respond to something that doesn't quite reach a full scale invasion of Ukraine, which all but greenlights uh, something akin to a 2014 attack on Ukraine, which was not a full-scale invasion, not initially. Um, he was later asked about this to respond to what he said. He says, so a reporter says, are you saying that a minor incursion by Russia into Ukrainian territory would not lead to the sanctions that you have threatened? One reporter asked, and he said, well, it did sound like that, didn't it? Suggesting that he knew he screwed up, at which point he then launches into another disquisition on how the, the Atlantic Alliance really doesn't have any kind of uh, unity over how to respond to this sort of thing. It's very important, he said, that we keep everyone in NATO on the same page because there are differences in NATO as to what countries are willing to do depending on what happens. Um, so there is disunity within the but alliance. don't worry. He talked, to the, he talked to the president of Finland and they're with them all. They're with us all the way. Well, he can he continued he Finland. He, he contradicted himself on a couple of occasions. At one point, Nokia, he says, "Yeah, the home of Nokia." At one point, he says, I, I, "My guess is they he will move in." He said of Putin. And minutes later, only to say, "I don't think he's made up his mind yet of the invasion." Then he says, "If he invades, it hasn't happened since World War II." Well, yes, it has. Russia in 19, 2014 invaded and annexed territory for the first time in, since nineteen forty five. Um, his command of the subject matter was limited. His ability to project resolve was absent. Uh, and insofar as Russia needed a permission structure to engage in exactly what they engaged in in 2014, which was little green men, paratroop and paradropping into Crimea and invading in Don Donbass and carving out illegitimate republics. He has everything he needs now. There's a lot of effort to walk this back from the White House up to and including statements by the National Security Council spokeswoman saying, well, he wasn't talking about cyber incursions or paramilitary operations. That's the sort of thing he's saying, you know, limited stuff like paramilitary operations. That's literally what happened in 2014. So the Twitter flax here who are all on their hands and knees, desperate to clean up this mess, are only exposing the extent to which they are not reliable interlocutors on this issue. I, I think I it's add? important to say just but, but let me just is um, it, it's not you're actually being a little nicer to him than I thought, where you said he knew he screwed up. He did screw up. He didn't know. I don't think he knew that he screwed up in this sense, which is he kind of kept doubling down. It, it, it's like some weird truth. You know, it's like he, he he goes shot up with sodium pentothal before he came out on stage. He was saying things that there was absolutely no justification for saying, even if every single word that he was speaking was true. Um, you know, he's not a commentator. He's not an analyst of Putin's behavior. He is the at, he is the representative of the adversary to Putin's actions, and and that the these two roles are not the same. Quite insanely, the opposite. Um, it was grotesquely irresponsible for him 
except that he was speaking his own truth, which is to say that he does not believe he doesn't. He no longer believes that the NATO alliance means anything. Brief uh, aside, because you mentioned. Can I just? I just want to add something. Yeah, sorry to, to both these. One, John, to bolster that point about him being sort of commentator here, <clears throat> he also said, um, "If Russia does go for a full-scale invasion, it will succeed." He said, "Yeah, they'll yeah. Russians will lose some men, but you know, but 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 they they can succeed." Um, the second point I just want to make to add to Noah's is that lest anyone think that we're being, you know, partisan and uh, sort of crazy hawkish here and we have our own uh, uh, prism through which we're looking at, at all this. Officials in Kiev heard this exactly how we did. Uh, immediately after the press conference, uh, CNN had someone on the scene in Ukraine who said he had spoke to several officials in Kiev who had said they were, quote, shocked and stunned by what Biden said and that he had essentially given Putin, quote, a green light to invade at his pleasure no practitioner of statecraft could hear this any other way right well you don't have to be a practitioner of statecraft you just have to be a person with ears he said yeah you know if he goes in he'll probably look he shouldn't do it because ooh, the sanctions he and, they're gonna hurt but then you have people like julia yaffe this morning on cnn saying well they're only joe biden only said what everybody could discern with their own eyes. Yeah, there is divisions in the ranks. Paris has one way they want to do this. Berlin has another. Ankara has another. Yeah, of course. And Putin is well aware of that. But the president of the United States, the uh, you know first among equals of the Atlantic Alliance, who had previously just said verbatim that he didn't think there were any divisions within NATO and then just went on to expose them, demonstrated nothing in, nothing in as much as his own confusion when it comes to being able to, to manage this alliance. If that if you were looking for any sort of, you know, if you were in Moscow and looking for indications that there is a lack of resolve on the part of the president and the alliance, you have all the evidence you need. I just don't know if he's confused. I think what we saw there was what he thinks. What he thinks is Putin's going to go in. We're going to do nothing except put sanctions on. Those sanctions are going to be painful. He's going to be sorry that we put sanctions on, but he's going to win at the end of the day. And we'll see where NATO is after that, because, um, you know, after all, Ukraine's not a member of NATO, so it doesn't really fall under the security guarantee memorandum or no memorandums that say that we're that we will defend its territorial integrity after uh, the Maidan uh, revolution. Whatever. Like he 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 spoke a truth. He's that. Um, is uh, I, I, I mean, I don't think that's confused. That's the problem. He, he was confused about what he was supposed to say. He was not confused about what he thinks. Uh, he was evidently confused about what he's supposed to say as he paused several times to say, well, let me No, I'm not going to say that in public. Uh, how can I put this in a public? For, uh, no. Well, I better not. I mean, there was a lot of that. And a lot then, of that. But, John know, actually he mentioned this. He was playing pundit. And at one point, way late in the press conference, when it had gone far too late, he spent two and a half minutes talking about cable news ratings. That and was sort that of was like particularly, I don't know if you know this, but dream of consciousness. He hears, he hears that five years from now, Fox's ratings are really going to go down. They're doing OK <laughs> today, though. I know, but five years, that's what he hears. And, you know, then people watch MSNBC. I mean, that was a sort of um, amazing uh, moment. But um, it was very Trumpy. I mean, uh, you know, well, the, the, the failing New York Times. 
Um, Christine, uh, your your impression. Uh, well, I put that when we were we were kind of, you know, of course, texting throughout the whole speech. But I was struck, actually, by how his uh, the abstractions in which he traffics when he talks about specific foreign policy challenges. He did this with Afghanistan up to a point and then and then started getting into specifics back back last summer. But in this press conference, I think what is so disconcerting beyond his signaling, as as Noah has said, that this it's fine if an invasion happens, is that he spoke of of Putin, like a, like a preschool teacher is talking to the parents of a kind of unruly child. It's like, hey, he'll settle down. He, he'll know. We'll, we'll teach him how to behave. And no one trusts him on that because his judgment is not backed up by any recognition or elucidation of the principle that guides him in thinking that. So that's what I was, I was looking, reaching for principle. Do we care about sovereignty? Nope, doesn't seem to mention that principle. Does he care about promoting freedom? Nope, not, not that. Are we worried about authoritarians kind of expanding their sphere of influence? No, not really, because you know, the sanctions will stop him. There was just, it was so ad lib. It was like a mad lib. Like you could just put in these abstractions um, over and over again. And that's why he kind of kept trailing off and pausing and seeming really, insecure actually about what he was supposed to say and that in this context with an imminent conflict and Russia on Ukraine's border is very frightening that that just is is creates anxiety rather than calming people down and informing the public about what their plan is they don't seem to have a plan always on the back foot always reactionary not forward thinking not leading we have to remember that Biden uh, views himself as an expert on foreign policy this is where he actually is in command of, of his of his uh, of uh, of knowledge and of history, and so unlike say COVID or inflation, where it's not clear always what information is getting up to him on foreign policy, it doesn't matter what information gets up to him because it's already figured out in his head. Right, he's going to turn eighty years old in November. He's been, he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Co Committee. He mentioned his old pal, John McCain. Um, it's all figured out in his head. He's made all, all these decisions. And so you saw him uh, not move an inch on Afghanistan, right? And just repeat all of the terrible arguments he made. Well, he um, made up a new one, actually. What was the, the notion one? here that we would have to, that's people were recommending 50,000 troops into Afghanistan. Right. Anybody who's done a lot of work on this, as we all have, knows that that wasn't on the table at no but point. I think he's I think he said that before. But by the way, if I'm not mistaken, he, he didn't include Afghanistan in his list of supposed successes, did he? No, he no, was. But no, he, he but no, then when he asked about it, he he said that he doesn't regret a single thing he did. And he reiterated right. the whole yeah. idea that, well, we can't save the world. We get the same thing, arguments he made when he was in the Senate and Vietnam collapsed, right? I mean, the guy doesn't change. This is the thing with Joe Biden is if people talk about cognitive decline, you, that assumes a standard from which you fall. This oh, is Biden. Biden has not changed in 50 years. That's he a deep burn. <laughs> he thinks he thinks he is the smartest person in the room. And he continues to at age 79 amidst collapsing public support collapsing public support. The approval ratings are awful. And of course, what did he say? It's so Trumpian. He said, oh, the polls are fake. I don't I don't believe, I don't the, believe polls. the polls. Right. I don't believe the polls. Fake polls, just like the failing yeah. Fox News, he just like the, the elections are illegitimate. The elections aren't going to be real. But then he spent it's, 60 seconds you know, discussing his job approval rating versus the average job approval rating of his predecessors at this point in their term, because he doesn't pay attention to the polls. 
so this this is I got that f- wrong too. Can we talk about numbers? Let's talk about numbers for a minute. He was throwing around a lot of weird numbers. For example, here's my favorite. 95% of schools are open. You guys are all talking about schools that are closed. 95% of schools are open. First of all, I don't know where that number comes from. I, I, I read, and Christine certainly read, every single story there is about schools in America and closings. I don't believe that there is a centralized database where you can say these schools are closed and these schools are open. Not so only that, made. but later on in the speech, he said it was actually closer to 98. 98. So over the course of the speech, okay. 3% now, of schools open. What more okay. do you people want? Let's talk math. But I, I did the math because, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I have a PhD in math. So um, I don't have a PhD in math. Um, there are uh, 130,000 schools in the United States. Uh, 95% of schools being open means that six, 6,500 schools are closed. 6,500 schools are closed. I'm not talking about weird protocols that keep kids in quarantine so that half the students are, I mean, closed. That's okay. 6,000 schools being closed. That's 6,000, you know, say an average of 1500 kids a school. I I mean, I don't know what the average is of school populations or something like that, but you know, so that's, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 kids not in school. That's okay with them. Really? We don't report the good news, which is that 95% of schools are open. hundred percent of schools should be open. Really? Are are we, are we at this, this point? Okay. So there's, yeah. And I'll just interject. It's not, what does school open even mean? Yeah. Because the real issue now is the quarantine policy, right? The school may be quote unquote open, but if you have a policy where if the student has a close contact or is uh, tests positive uh, or some other, you know, the classmate tests positive, then they're out in some cases for 10 days, for two they're, weeks. No, they're not so it's closed out. for them. They're not just out. Their entire class could be out if yes, they right. expose their class. So the school and, might right. be open. But what parents the, are experiencing right. is completely beyond that now. Right, But I want to talk about the other number. So then there was another number that he threw out. People keep talking about how uh, supermarket shelves are empty. Well, you know, um, I can't quite remember. 89%. What the, 89% of the shelves are full. Where, which is very close to the pre-pandemic status quo, where 91% yeah. of inventory was in where, where all these, stores. Right. Yeah. First of all, where are these numbers from? Number one. Number two, inventory was never an issue in the United States until, you know, two years ago. Why? Everything that is on a store shelf that we're talking about here is on consignment, meaning that it's produced by a manufacturer. It's sent to a store. Uh, The store doesn't pay for it. The store houses it, takes a cut of the sale, sends a cut of the sale to the manufacturer, right? So um, manufacturers make excessive amounts of goods, send them, they have to be returned and all of that. Um, We don't have a short, we have never had a shortages problem in the United States in my lifetime, except when there are panics or runs up, like when there was the toilet paper panic at the beginning uh, of the pandemic, right? We don't have shortages because we produce excess amounts of material and we import it and all of that. Now we have shortages. So let's talk about this number again. If it's true, and I don't know if it's true because I don't again, I don't understand where what the what the collection data point is for all of this and how delayed it is and all of that. 
that means that stores are 11% empty. Not that they're 89% full. The full doesn't matter. It's a question of the fact that they're 11% empty. When it doesn't cost a store a penny to have any of these goods in the store. It's not that they're not open to having goods on shelves. It's that the, the goods are not arriving. And that's 10 to 11% of the goods that they would normally expect to have on their shelves. That's a lot. That's 10%. If you're talking about retail sales of, you know, of, of everyday goods, that's, that's 10, that's a shortage. That is a shortage. It's a 10th of what there should be. I mean, am I, am I, am I taking crazy pills here? Well, no one would question your expertise in math. Yeah. No one, no, one, no one will question your expertise in math as a, Thank you. As yeah, a PhD. I know. So, so, yes. But yeah. I think it gets to the, the, the fundamental lesson of this press conference, which is Joe Biden thinks nothing is wrong. Joe Biden doesn't understand what you people are complaining about. I mean, 89% of the shelves are full. 98% of the schools are open. We have all these vaccines. I'm going to send you masks. What are you, what, what is the problem here? There's no reason for me to reset. I'm happy with my team. I'm my, I'm going to run again with Kamala Harris. Everything is fine. And just to step back and think of that as a political strategy, to me, it's a disaster. It's an ongoing <laughs> disaster because what he read, what he needs now is a actual reset, but we got nothing like that yesterday. And, and that's oh, been a through line. The other part of that, I think you're absolutely right, Matt. And it's a good way of looking at this entire first year of his term, because the other side of that, we've talked about this a lot, is that when people complain, he turns it back around like you've disappointed me. Why are you complaining? And that feeds the public's, you know, the, the polls he does look at, which he should show his the disapproval ratings. That's why, because we're disappointing him. He couldn't possibly disappoint us because he's doing the right thing. And then there's the other thing that he that he admitted or talked about in this kind of weird pundit way, which is that inflation is going to get worse. He had this right. whole peroration There's about a stat in gas there. prices. There's another statistic there. Or oh, another, was there? Okay, good. A percent. Um, maybe you didn't know, but one third, fully one third of the cost increase of the cost of living is due to the cost of automobiles. Perhaps you didn't know that because no one knew that. No one's ever compiled that statistic. And that was when he said that the price of oil is going to continue to go up. Enjoy that, America. By the way, that contention is psychotic because, you know, people already have cars. You don't, if a car is too expensive, you don't then buy a new car, right? Or if there's a shortage of used cars, you're not going to buy whatever. However, it slices, people already have working cars. So their, their individual car that they own didn't go up in price. Putting, a, putting gas in the tank goes up in price. If you have to replace it, you have a problem because you're replacing something with something that's much more expensive. But that's not uh, what he meant was that used cars went up 34% and thus has, or were, the, were the leading driver of the inflationary spiral, not that a third of the cost to any individual consumer is in their car. Now who's being charitable? I'm not being charitable. I, he's a, I was about to curse and I'm not, I, <laughs> I, I held myself back because I'm a PhD in math and, you know, we don't, we, 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 we stick resolutely to, to, to the facts and we don't use that kind of language. Um, 
I'm not a PhD in math. I just want to make that clear. I'm about as far from being PhD in math as you can be, which is why my being able to discern that Joe Biden is making stats up is, is really, if I can figure it out, anybody can figure it out. That's, that's, um, that, that's what's interesting. So I, I think, so he said, Putin's going to invade Ukraine. My guess is he's going to go in and he'll win. Inflation's going to go up. Uh, what else? I mean, it was the illegitimacy of, like, oh, of the election. This is a right. But I'm yeah. just saying, I'm just saying, Guess what, America? I've been president for a year. Inflation is out of control, and I'm just about to let Vladimir Putin take over another country on the European continent. Just, I, but I've overperformed. I'm great. I'm so great. Well, has anyone created a system to get shots in arms like I have? Said Biden. That system was in place when he became president. That was he didn't create that system. The deals with Walmart and CVS and setting up vaccine. First of all, the vaccination sites were set up at the state level, not at the federal level. Number one. And number two, the deals to do to use, you know, private uh, resources to do that were in place during the Trump administration. You liar. You didn't do it. You can't take credit. I mean, you can take credit for it. Go ahead. I don't know. But uh, just on the inflation point, um, we should also address the fact that. He has the cure for inflation. He knows what it is. It's build back better. <laughs> right? Which he's uh, which is also great and on him, but doesn't exist. It's dead. Well, chunks it's might exist. Dead. It's gonna be broken. There might up be chunks, chunks of it. it might yeah, be chunks. chunks. Right. Can we talk PBB about the chunks? chunks. Yeah, can it's we like talk about the chunks? Coke, you know, new Coke. <laughs> the last time the word chunks was used, uh, the way that uh, the word chunk is being used here was when uh, the late uh, wife of John F. Kennedy uh, Jr. was said to have uh, a hair uh, coloring plan that involved buttery chunks. I that kept I thinking of Wayne's the... World. I, I hear chunks that I, I, I think of oh, Wayne's oh, oh, World. Oh, you're going to hurl? I'm going to hurl, man. That's what I, that's how I was. I, I mean, actually, that's that was my response. That yes. was my response to a lot of this press conference. I would, what, one, I, one other data point to suggest that he really has no idea what he's doing is he you you're talking about his you know sense of accomplishment well there was one big accomplishment in the middle of the year and that was the bipartisan infrastructure bill and it undercut everything else he was saying about the republicans his whole strategy clearly is to spend the next uh nine months lambasting the republicans for being pawns of donald trump for not standing for anything for being obstructionist a much harder case to make in uh, 2022 than it was for Obama, Obama 10 years earlier in, in 2012. But that, that seems to be what he wants to do. At the same time, if you actually look at what he was able to get across the finish line and which lived up to his promise of being able to unite America, it was the bipartisan infrastructure package, which he barely touched on, maybe because he understands that if he were to focus on that and to make it the centerpiece of his, his second year in office, or to build on that for the second year in office, everything else he said would be exposed as just, you know, kind of mindless posturing. You know, okay, I, I want to, to talk about the legislative that. stuff, but give me a second. Sure. I, we, we need to go to the legislative stuff, but I need to talk to you guys about Bambi, our advertiser today. 
because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap. An average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees. Cancel any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Okay, so let's go to the legislative uh, at portions where he said uh, people didn't want him to be president, senator or senator president. They wanted him to be president, which explains why the president gets in his motorcade and is constantly going down to Capitol Hill and being humiliated when he goes because he doesn't get anything he wants, which is really great for the power, the exalted power of the executive branch, that they're not coming to him. He's going to them. It's like that whole sequence on Curb Your Enthusiasm, where the entire season is all about whether Jason Alexander is going to come to Larry David's office or Larry David is going to go to Jason Alexander's office and they so can't figure it out that they don't do the show together. That is exactly what is going on here. Not to say that, um, you know, uh, Joe Biden is like a, a Gentile, stupid Larry David. So, you know, this, this, uh, you know, particularly, I don't know, his eyes don't open anymore. Did anybody notice that? You, you can't even, you can't see his eyes. It's like, it's weird. It's like watching Plastic the press surgery. conference. Yeah. Is it plastic surgery or is it age? I don't know what it is. Anyway, okay, let's talk about the legislative stuff. So uh, the headline, of course, as Christine mentioned, was, um, yeah, the election in 2022 is going to be illegitimate if uh, these bills don't pass. We need to I want to I want to spell this out specifically because he was asked about it twice. Uh, Most pressed by uh, Philip Wegman, um, he said, uh, it could easily, easily could be legitimate was the response about the 2022 midterms. And then he added, I'm not going to say it's going to be legit. And it's important that everyone listen to that because this morning cleanup on aisle five is happening. Jen Psaki and all the, the rest of the White House uh, spokespeople are out there on all the major shows talking to all the reporters claiming that's not what he said. Claiming it, that's not a kind of a Trumpian sort of rhetoric about the integrity of elections. They are lying to the American people this morning about what the president said to the American people yesterday afternoon. And he should be held to account for what he said and that the convoluted efforts to say, well, what he means is that if they don't if they don't pass this federalization of election laws that the Democrats want, this highly partisan thing that doesn't have enough votes to pass, then the elections that do happen are not going to be as free and fair as we would want them. So in that sense, they're illegitimate. It's all ridiculous. Uh, It's a smokescreen. What he said was that he couldn't say right now that the midterm elections that are upcoming can be legitimate. That undermines people's faith in our election process. And it is not something the president of the United States should do, whether he has a D after his name or an R after his name. It's bad. It's bad for the country. Can we just talk logistically here about what's gone on in the last two elections? Because Biden is now calling into question the potential legitimacy of the 2022 election. Let's talk about the last two elections under current rules that don't involve the John Lewis, sainted John Lewis, sainted for the people, sainted voter protection act of 2020 blah. Okay. Democrats got 63 million votes 
in 2018, winning 40 seats in the House and won and got 83 million votes. Now that the final count is in, in 2020, winning the presidency. If nothing changes except some small things at certain uncertain state levels, and they're small, let's let's make this clear about what the changes are in Georgia and Texas and all this. They're small. There is some reason to think that the conspiracy theory that Democrats are promulgating can't be immediately dismissed that, you know, these are like um, down payments. The election changes are down payments on further efforts to restrict voting. But as it is, it's like, so you can't give water and there are going to be fewer drop boxes and all of this, whatever. That All of that was in place in 2018, and they got the largest single turnout in midterm history and, and crushed the So uh, these elections taking place without these bills where Democrats have crushed the last two elections are going to be illegitimate. They are calling into question the legitimacy of their own victories under under the under those circumstances. I don't understand the logic of this. Can anyone? I mean, in other words, like they did it in spite of Republican recalcitrance. They overwhelmed. So why can't they do it again? I don't. You know, it's like um, are they, they're they're going to depress their own turnout the way Trump depressed Republican turnout by saying. You know, they fix, they've rigged it. They fixed it. Don't go and vote in Georgia. You know, don't go vote in the Senate races in Georgia. What's the point? What's the point? They rigged the election. This is actually how Biden wants to go into 2022 when he needs every single possible Democratic voter to drag themselves to the polls to spare the Democratic Party from a wipeout. OK. Can anyone. Take over from here while I like calm down. I understand your frustration. I'm just trying to parse through what Biden might have been thinking when he said, when he brought this up. And I think it has to do with the sphere, as you suggested, that, that uh, these election bills in Texas and Georgia will allow, um, let, will allow partisan officials to override the vote. But neither bill does that. And of, of all the bills that have been passed throughout the country, I think, or I think there's something, 17 of them, the Wall Street Journal pointed out in an editorial earlier this week is that has that hasn't been done. So it's it's a, a conspiracy based that's prospective. Right. That's based on a myth that is driving him to suggest that if we don't pass these bills now, the election will be illegitimate. And it go, it, it goes to this confusion between so-called voter suppression and electoral subversion, right? What, what, what Donald Trump did after the election of 2020 was an attempt to subvert the result of the election. He wanted to overturn a fair election and remain in power. The Democrats want uh, to prevent that from happening. And guess what? A lot of Republicans do too. And so the best way to approach the issue is not to talk about so-called voter suppression, which just makes no sense. If you say that rolling back some of the, um, you know, accommodations that were made in 2020 due to the pandemic amounts to an attack on minority voting rights, that's a non sequitur. That makes no sense. But if you want to start from a place saying we don't want a repeat of November, December and January 
uh, of 2020, 2021. And so how do we create, how do we, uh, reform the system to make it less likely that Trump uh, could have succeeded. Um, that is the basis for a bipartisan majority in the United States Congress. And Biden kind of alluded to that in his press conference, but it, he's really not going to uh, embrace those efforts uh, until, uh, well, the, the vote failed last night uh, when we're recording this, but um, he wasn't about to do it uh, during the press conference itself ahead of the Senate vote. Noah, you, uh, we need to discuss last night. Um, you, you, after the press conference, Senate continued to debate and Mitch McConnell uh, delivered this floor speech in which he said, uh, we're, we, we, we Republicans and whoever is with us is that we're saving the Republic. This is the most important. Uh, this is the mo most important vote in the history of the Senate. He said, uh, uh, "We've saved the Senate. It's going to fail. Nice try. You're full of it." Then Chuck Schumer got up, made some very weird, pointless, um, you know, quoting that weird thing that I would say that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said about the sacred right to vote, which you wouldn't really expect a a preacher, a pastor to say, like, it's a little idolatrous to say that the right to vote is sacred. It's, you know, important, essential, uh, key to a democracy. Uh, sacred is, um, I mean, idolatry is more of a, you know, it was more of a Jewish thing, uh, Jewish fear than, 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 than a fear of other faiths. But nonetheless, um, I, I don't know. Um, so he said, you know, this is what Martin Luther King said. Now we're going to vote. And then that's it. So, so much for the talking filibuster, so much for ending the filibuster, so much for the voting rights bill, so much for the John Lewis bill, so much for the for the this, so much for everything. Um, your thoughts, Noah? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, it wasn't just rhetoric. What uh, Mitch McConnell said that this was the most important day of the Senate. The uh, assembled senators acted like it when this vote was open. There was no glad handing. There was no, you know, collegial handshakes and whispers in the well. Everybody was seated at their desks and treating it very solemnly um, because it was solemn. Uh, we talked all week about this extremely convoluted, harebrained scheme that Democrats were going to pursue in order to get people into a talking filibuster and have a vote so that a simple majority of senators could pass legislation after debate had concluded, as long as it was deemed a one legislative day so no senators could talk twice, blah, blah, blah. Nobody can follow that. Nobody cares. And somehow this gets everybody on the record about voting rights, right? You have to really be steeped in your own BS to believe that. But anyway, they called this, Joe, or uh, Senator Schumer, called this vote and it was a nuclear vote. He pushed the button on the nuclear option and the nuclear exchange lasted about 35 seconds. And the forces that mounted this attack were routed rather quickly because it turns out all evidence that we have suggesting that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are not bluffing was true. They're not bluffing. <laughs> they killed it. They killed it quickly. But the terms of engagement have changed. You can't un-attack you can't undo a nuclear attack, which is what this was. It has expanded the rules of engagement in ways that Democrats will come to regret. And all for what? A show vote over a priority for all of what? 16% of the public, this voting rights, federal takeover elections thing. 
and got two senators on the record against their own party um, at the same time as Senator er, as congressional staffers. John, you sent this out to us yesterday. Congressional staffers were talking to CNN reporters, laying preemptively laying the blame for the Democratic Party's epic defeat, which seems inevitable at the hands of of Joe Biden. Uh, this is a party that is at war with itself. Republicans are just sort of spectators watching this internecine blood feud play out in ways that will clearly redound to the benefit of the GOP. And they can't seem to break themselves out of this weird conflict that they have amongst each other. And they're just trying to draw blood now from each other for what? For talking points? I don't understand it. But they 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 can't break out of this cycle, this well, self-destructive they- cycle. They, they, it was interesting. I think this goes back to something uh, one of y'all raised earlier in the show about how Biden was is going to is pitching the Republicans now as entirely obstructionist. Like he kept saying over and over again, he went into his Biden whisper. What is what? What do they stand for? What do they stand for? And I, I found it both hilarious and heartening that McConnell, when asked about this by a reporter later, said, "We'll tell you when we're back in charge." Like the the idea that the that the problem right now in the country is that the people running it, who are all on the Democratic side of the aisle, are bungling things, and rather than that, you know, they're just being obstructed, obstructed. It's all the Republicans' fault. At the very day that the first time in 10 months, the leader of the Democrats is giving a press conference, president of the United States, the Democrats choose this to do a very public spanking of two of their moderate members. These are not radical people. I mean, this is Manchin is is a moderate Democrat. The party has moved further left and he's kind of sat where he's always been. And I think it, it, it just shows uh, that they are the ideological purity test that they're going to continue to demand of their members in order to suit this narrative about democracy in peril is going to it's not just the 2022 elections that are going to they're going to pay the price for that. I think long term, they're, they're going to pay for the price of that with voters who don't really think this makes sense. Two brief points on that. Uh, first, this is not a cost free maneuver. They forced members who were very coy about the filibuster to get on record. Mark Kelly, Maggie Hassan. Um, uh, Cortez Masto, all these people who were just kind of like, they're on the bubble. First of all, they're up next year. And they were a little coy about this or this year. And they were coy about this. And the the Senate majority leader forced them to go on record against probably against their political instincts. Second, Christine, your point, which I thought is very interesting, because at one point, uh, Fox News Channel's Peter Ducey asked Joe Biden a very pointed question. Why are you trying to drive this country to the left? Why did you spend your first year driving this country to the left? And and Joe Biden uh, objected and said, I, I am a, a, a mainstream Democrat at no point. This is his central to his identity. He has always considered himself right at the center of his own party. That's that's where he's positioned himself. And that's his that's his his identity. Um, and it's probably the best answer he could have given to that question, because the median Democrat is farther left than mm-hmm. they used to be and is farther left than where the country is. So to say you are a median Democrat means, yes, you are going to pull this country to the left because that's where the party is. Exactly. And its donor base in particular is much farther to the left. I, I wish Joe. that Peter Ducey had uh, included some examples uh, with that question to make it uh, to have made it a little harder for Biden to refute. I just want to say on this, this point that, that when Biden kept repeating, what are the Republicans for? Um, I think it's an easy question, mostly. Um, they're very vocally for dismantling uh, a good deal of the pandemic restrictions. They've, they've not been at all shy about that. And uh, beyond that, it's, it's a sort of a, a cute kind of framing trick to say, what are, what are the Republicans for when the majority, when the party in charge is the one asserting everything? You know right. exactly what the Republicans are for, and you're against all of it. Um, Manchin, uh, 
gave his uh, speech in opposition to ending the filibuster, do it, whatever, talk, whatever it was, uh, during Biden's press conference. And he stood there with a sign that said the United States Senate has never been able to end debate with a simple majority. He, he had a sign next to him that he made reference to. And it's an important point because if you listen to the liberal apologists for ending the filibuster, they say the filibuster is an unnatural thing. It's, it's wrong. It's a rule. It was you know, used to defend segregation. It was used to sort of defend segregation. And it's a terrible thing. And no one ever intended it. And Alexander Hamilton said that it was toxic. And I, whatever. I don't know. So, and, you know, so you would believe from this image, and, the, and one of the people uh, peddling this is Adam Gentleson, who was Harry Reid, the former Senate Majority Leader's chief aide. This is outrageous. The filibuster's bad. Uh, okay. So obviously it was better before, right? It was better before the filibuster. Well, there are two things, one of which is, as Manchin says, Senate procedure has always denied the power of a simple majority vote. Second is, in this great antediluvian moment when the Senate was a body of extraordinary capacity that reflected the views of the people better than it does now, until 1913, the Senate was not popularly elected. Senators were appointed by either governors or state legislatures. They were not popularly elected. They have been popularly elected for 108 or 109 years. Period. It was not a majoritarian institution. It was as it was intended to be an aristocratic institution that was not beholden to voters, but was rather beholden what was set at an iterative remove from the voter. And uh, that was deemed at some point in the 20th century to be at the early 20th century during the reformist movement. Uh, to be an affront to our, you know, to our system, and the Senate became popularly elected as a result of a constitutional amendment. That that so we're now in a position where Democrats are now hailing in the for on the on the grounds that the Senate should be a majoritarian, one man, one vote institution. It's not fair because there are two senators for every state, no matter what the population is, and all this, and it's really terrible because you need sixty votes and all this. They're essentially trying to harken back to a time when. Senators weren't elected by popular vote. You know who was a supporter of that idea? Rick Perry. Rick Perry, governor of Texas, wrote a whole essentially a book that was like an anti-federalist. It was like the revival of the anti-federalist uh, movement of the late um, 18th century, in which he said the greatest problem in the United States, the history of the United States, was the popular election of senators. And if we just got rid of that, if we could, if we could get rid of that amendment, everything would be would be great. So now we have like radical leftist Democrats now essentially endorsing the Rick P Perry view, as far as I can tell. Uh, if Rick Perry actually believed that, and it wasn't just the words of some psychotic, you know, Hillsdale. Uh, uh, you know, ghostwriter, whatever. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who the anti-federalists are today. But it's a big Tea Party thing was repealing the uh, 17th Amendment. So we needed to have the Senate as a check. Yeah. Uh, and so it's funny to see Adam Gentleson embrace uh, that time when the Senate was not popularly elected. Yeah. And there's this whole Groundhog Day quality to this presidency that we, no matter 
how much evidence there is that they don't have the votes for the election takeover bills, they don't have the votes to change the filibuster, and they don't have the votes for Build Back Better. We are going to spend every single day up to the election talking about the election bills, the filibuster, and Build Back Better. There's no alternative, it seems. And, And this is why if I were a democratic strategist, I would be pulling my hair out over the Biden administration. When, if you know, look, it, 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 just drop the voting thing. No one, no one cares about it. It's a low priority issue. And more, moreover, um, it, it's, 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 it's a self-inflicted defeat. Uh, and on Build Back Better, if you really want a bill, you simply go to Mansion and Cinema and say, what, what would you vote for? And once they give you that, maybe they won't give you that, in which case, you know, you're going to have to move on. But once they give you that, then you turn to the other Democrats and say, "Okay, this is what we're going to do. And the truth is, Democrats now are so desperate to get anything that they would probably agree to whatever bottom line mansion or cinema propose. Instead, though, weirdly, the chunk strategy goes against the just bargain with mansion and cinema and see if anything can happen because now you're going to make it piecemeal and you're going to set up separate votes. And some of the votes on these separate issues, I mean, will be quite lopsided against the the democratic or progressive proposal. So do you really want that? I I don't know. All I know is that we're going to spend the rest of the year talking about build back better. I think even more important because you and I talked about this last night, Matt, is that um, under the rules of reconciliation, under the rules according to which these bills can be voted on with 50 votes plus the vice president, they only get two, I I can't remember how it works. Right. They get two or three votes a year. You can't break, you can't use reconciliation at will. I mean, I don't quite know how it works. You'd have to change the rule and then you get into the changing the rule question and Manchin could object to changing the rule on the grounds that it's, it, it, you know, it's a, a budget buster and you're only doing it so you can break this stuff up and then vote on bills that will cost a lot of money. Uh, this is a complicated thing. It all involves because these bills have budgetary implications. Um, uh, a emendation was made in order that the government could stay open, uh, that you could vote on them with a simple majority in the Senate and not the 60 vote rule. So, um, as you know, they hoped that they could get Build Back Better or wh- whatever it was. There was some bill they hoped they could get chosen to be a budget reconciliation bill. And the Senate parliamentarians said, or maybe a voting rights, I can't remember what, but, you know, said there's no budgetary implications that we can't. We can't the immigration bring, piece. The immigration piece. Sorry. Right. You can't bring it up under this. There are no budgetary implications. So it's not it doesn't fit the model. Um, we 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 got to go. Um in the annals of American history, can anybody pull out a single moment where a presidency did what Biden did yesterday? This was the worst press conference since the Helsinki press conference in 2018. <laughs> I was, and, the, right. and the truth is, uh, after that disaster, Putin didn't invade a country. So in some ways, it's it's even worse. But I think you have to look at either the Charlottesville press conference in 2017 uh, or the 2018 Helsinki press conference for uh, precedent. But it, this was this was up there. 
this was this was a just atrocious performance by the president. By the way, it started out fine. I mean, not impressive, but what he came there to talk about, he didn't really do himself any harm. He didn't even mention Russia or Ukraine in in what he delivered at first. This all came from the questions. Right. No, he was actually trying to talk through like uh, getting past uh, the COVID stalemate, the, the emotional COVID stalemate. Right. He's like, schools should be open. We should get back to work. Uh, you know, things are looking bright. You know, we're burning through Omicron, whatever. He was actually trying to make a positive case that was sort of on the track of we're not mired in this. This is not the 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 the, the disaster is over. We have a plan to get through it. We're going to have we have treatments, we have pills, we have vaccines, we have a, you know, we have all these things in our toolkit and uh, and things are, are looking bright. And that was a that was a good thing for him to say. And then, of course, he forgot to keep saying it. And it was interesting, by the way, that almost nobody asked a question about COVID, I think, because no one has anything left to say about COVID. And we don't have anything left to say about COVID or anything else. Got to go. Matt Connetti, thank you very much. Everybody go to Amazon and order his book, The Right, or Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your fine books. Um, and for uh, Noah, Christine, and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.